We wanted to sort of jump right into it tonight, but if you're visiting, uh, you have found Lemon Cove Community Church. We're glad that you're here, whether this is your first time or if you're revisiting us. And uh, we wanted to put all of the focus this evening on what it means for Jesus to die on the cross. It's a pretty common symbol in our culture, isn't it? Uh, Christians, of course, you come to a church and the church will have a cross on it somewhere. If you uh, meet people out in the wide world, they might have uh, tattoos or even a necklace with a cross on it. And you don't even have to be a Christian sometimes to have those things. I think it's sort of a good luck charm almost for some people. Like, uh, I'll try and be on the right side of as many different uh, people as I can be. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was this great movie, The Mummy, a number of years ago, where one of the characters in it confronts a, a risen-from-the-grave mummy, and he holds up a, a cross in front of him to see if that'll help. And when that doesn't, he pulls out a whole ring of, he's got like a Star of David, and he's got the crescent moon. You know, sometimes I, I think it feels a little bit like that. And I wish for all of us, whether we are a follower of Jesus or not, whether that's at the, the very center of our life or you know, somewhere in there, or maybe it's not part of our life at all, I wish that we could approach this story and this symbol completely fresh and completely new. Because even as our understanding of what the cross and what Jesus is about can deepen the longer we follow him, the more we know him, and even the more we know about him, it can also start to become familiar and less significant and less important for those reasons too, can't it? I think sometimes uh, when it comes to Good Friday or when it comes to the cross uh, or anything else in our faith and really anything else in life, the things that are really special can start to seem mundane and not that special at all. It happens in our faith. It happens in our relationships. Uh, it happens everywhere. So I wish we could come for the first time and see these things. And that's what I'd like to invite us to do tonight. I want to start by saying, well, We've heard all of these passages out of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and if you don't know too much about your Bible, it's okay. It's part of what I'm here for. It's job security for me. Uh, in the New Testament, which is the story of Jesus and his followers, you have four books that are called Gospels. And that word gospel just means good news. And it is the good news about Jesus Christ. These four Gospels tell us the story of his life and his death and his resurrection. And someone once said that the Gospel of Mark is sort of like a story of Jesus' crucifixion with an introduction of the other things that he did. It's amazing how much of these four Gospels are dedicated just to telling that particular story of the Passion Week and and. His passion, which, by the way, the word passion means suffering. So when you're going out there saying, I want to follow my passion, I don't know that that's actually, as someone else famously said, I don't know if that means what you think it means. But whatever the case, whatever the case, this is the key event for all the people who talk about Jesus. And what are these different characters doing in the story? We heard about four different characters and groups as Kelly read those scripture passages for us tonight. 
We heard about the Jewish religious leaders who were also the, the elders of the people. As far as the people, the Jews had any power in their own land because they were actually living under Roman occupation. These were the people in power. And then, secondly, we heard about Jesus appearing before Pilate, who was the Roman governor. He was the real power in the land. And then we saw people walking by, the crowds, who saw Jesus hanging on the cross and their response. And then finally, we heard from a Roman centurion. And I want to take them one at a time. And I want to start with those, I'm going to go in order. So I'm going to start with the religious leaders. Why did they want Jesus killed in the first place? Because surely they weren't thinking, you know, God wants to save us from our sins by, you know, Jesus dying on the cross. So we just want to cooperate with that tonight. We're going to help out. There's actually, they didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So why did they want him killed? And to find the answer to this question, we have to go page back a bit earlier in Mark's gospel. We find Jesus entering Jerusalem. That was last Sunday, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. He was hailed by the crowds of people as the promised king, the promised Messiah. And the next day, Jesus went to the temple as popular as he had ever been. And then he acted out judgment upon the temple and the religious establishment by making a whip out of cords. If you uh, follow along in the story, Jesus actually sat down in the middle of the temple, got some stuff, and started tying it together. And everyone's like, Jesus, what are you doing? He's like, just hold on. I'll be a minute, but I'll be ready. Everyone was, something is about to happen here. And then Jesus chased all of the businessmen who were making money on people's religion out of the temple with a whip that he had put together. He was acting out judgment on the temple and the money changers and the traders, and by extension, who else? The religious leaders. These actions communicated to them that Jesus was their enemy. First, he was a competitor for their power. And secondly, by judging the temple, Jesus was judging them as well. So they responded by trying to discredit Jesus in debate. This is what's happening in chapters 13 and uh, 14. They keep coming up and thinking of the hardest questions that they can to ask Jesus so that they can trap him. But not only could they not trap Jesus, Jesus routinely turned the tables on them by exposing the hypocrisy of their questioning. In one particularly telling incident, they asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Do you, you know, come in as king and, and judge the temple? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Who gave you authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, okay, I will answer your question if you answer mine. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? This was John the Baptist. He appeared in the beginning of the gospel. And you don't have to know the whole story to understand what's happening here. These religious leaders discussed it with one another. They said, well, if we say from heaven, Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe him? So we can't say that. But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Are they honest question askers? Or are they just trying to satisfy their own ambition and satisfy their own need to be recognized as the smartest people in the room? See, the religious leaders had abandoned truth in favor of ambition so long ago that they maybe couldn't even tell the difference between the two any longer. 
So when Jesus threatened their ambition, he had, they had him killed. Because that's how you get ahead in an upside-down world. It's power over truth every time. We don't know anything about that in the 21st century, do we? Take that in whatever way you want. I'm a mystery up here. Now we look at the religious leaders and we think to ourselves that they were great fools for what they did. And they were. But to tell the truth, we are all tempted to serve ambition over truth, aren't we? That's part of why the religious leader's story is in the Bible. It's a human story. And you and I are human too. Every lie you and I have ever told is in service of some ambition that we have. The ambition to have a happier marriage. The ambition uh, to get ahead. No, I totally turned in that report. <laughs> that was definitely my work and not theirs. Right? Sabotaging each other at work. Nobody does that, I know. We tell lies so that other will, others will think well of us. We manipulate people to see us in the best light. Isn't that serving our ambition, just like the religious leaders? See, we're like them, doing upside-down things, cooperating with lies rather than the truth that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Rescuer, the Son of God, because we live in an upside-down world, and that seems like the way to get along. So yes, the religious leaders were among those who killed Jesus, but their story shows that I that you, that we all, are among his murderers as well. Because what does a right-side-up person like Jesus think he is trying to accomplish in this upside-down world? So now we turn to Pilate. I think Pilate's an absolutely fascinating character in this story. He isn't a Jew. He doesn't care a bit over arguments about who the Jewish Messiah is. He doesn't care about the reputation or, or the ambition of the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, so the religious leaders, knowing that they need to sell Pilate on this kill Jesus thing, they interpret their faith in a way that Pilate will understand and know he has to do something about it. He tells them that Jesus, because he's claiming to be the Messiah, is claiming to be Israel's true king over and against even Caesar whom Pilate served. Caesar actually put Pilate in charge of Palestine. And Pilate knows he doesn't want to get on Caesar's wrong side. But when Pilate hears the accusation, he knows that something is wrong. The Jews want to throw off Roman rule. This isn't a secret. They want their independence. And now they're handing over a man they claim is in rebellion against Caesar. They're not doing this honestly. You also get the idea that Pilate is completely unimpressed with Jesus himself. This man is not any threat to Caesar. And to me, that's what makes Pilate's story so interesting. Pilate knows how to recognize a king when he sees him. He's dressed in either finery or the blood of his enemies, and Jesus is dressed in neither. He looks like a peasant out of the land, and as a matter of fact, that's exactly what he is. And this is part of Mark's point for us. This is why this is written for us. Mark wants us to see just how upside down our world is and how right side up Jesus is. If Pilate can't recognize a king in Jesus, it's only because the kings of this world are so little like true kings. Caesar, for all of his glory and all of his supposed power, is simply a child who always seems to get his way. 
He's just looking out for number one and maybe the people that he wants to take with him. There is little about him that's truly regal, truly noble, and truly authoritative. But in a world ruled by death, he who can deal the most death is king. Jesus, however, belongs to a world full of life, and kingship looks very different there. See, we're more like Pilate than we'd like to admit. We, too, are confused by the battered and humble king who stands before Pilate. We don't naturally see the power radiating out of Jesus, do we? We don't see that Jesus' way of rule is better. It's much easier to trust in laws and cops and armies for solutions. It's much easier to trust in trying to get the majority on our side because then we've got the power and we can do whatever we want, pass whatever laws we want, and have the might of the state behind it to get our way. But God preaches to us that these were always and only stopgaps. They were emergency measures to restrain evil, not to eliminate it, not to change the nature of the world that we live in. And it's true on its face, isn't it? A cop may help make a neighborhood safe, which is a wonderful thing, but he doesn't actually make people good, does he? That's beyond his power. Yes, Pilate put Jesus to death. How often we would do the same, trusting in the death dealers rather than the life giver. And now Jesus is flogged. Now Jesus carries his cross to the place of execution. And now he climbs the hill. Now the nails are driven into his hands and his feet. Now the cross is raised up and he begins to struggle to breathe and his body accelerates toward death. And in our third scene, the cross is in a public place. It wasn't hidden away somewhere. And there are people who are just going about their daily business passing by. It wasn't uncommon to see in those days. And as is their habit, they begin to throw insults at the fool on the cross, the pretend king. Insults are thrown, especially people yelling at him, as Mark records for us, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. If you're really who you say you are, act in the way we would expect you to, to prove it. Real kings don't die on crosses. Real messiahs aren't thrown there by our religious leaders. Normally, I'd want to stick just with what Mark says and not jump to a different gospel, but I think Mark is actually referring to a saying of Jesus that his audience knew about, even though Mark didn't directly record it in his gospel. But the gospel of John tells us that when Jesus said this, destroy this temple and I will build it up, I'll rebuild it in three days, John tells us that he was referring to the temple of his body. And we need to understand that that's Mark's point. See, in ancient Judaism, the temple was a unique place in all the earth, not Jesus' body, but the building in the middle of town, on the hill. It was the one place where heaven and earth truly and reliably met. The temple was the place where Israel had special access to God. If they lost the temple, then they would say, we can't speak to God in the way that we need to. 
and God won't speak to us and bless us according to the covenant that we have with him. The temple was absolutely vital to their understanding of what it meant to be in relationship with God. But something better was here. And paradoxically, it was also about to be here. It wasn't here all the way yet. See, heaven and earth would no longer meet by virtue of a building in Jerusalem, but in the person of Jesus Christ. First, the very fact that Jesus himself could rebuild his own temple, his own body, links him in identity with the very creator of the universe itself. Jesus was not only the Son of Man, the Messiah, he was and is the unique Son of God. And in his very person, even in his very body, heaven and earth meet. The divine, the heavenly, walks in the earthly in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the new and better temple. So the crowds ironically demand that Jesus shows, you know, Jesus show us that you can rebuild the temple in three days by coming off the cross. But that's exactly what Jesus will never accomplish if he comes off the cross. He can only give them what they want by doing what they don't expect. The people couldn't imagine their relationship with God without the temple in Jerusalem. So they mocked the one who would give them a better temple. And you and I, these stories are to illustrate something about us as well. Jesus, don't be our temple, is what we say every time we try to earn God's love and good judgment by doing good things instead of by trusting in Jesus. Jesus, don't take my sin upon yourself. Just give me a little more time, and I'll I'll take care of it. Come back in a week and see if I've made some progress. Maybe you'll be happy with me then. Don't build us a better temple, Jesus. The cost of it, the humiliation is too much. Save yourself and get off the cross. Now, it should be said, briefly, before we move on, in case we misunderstand, that we followers of Jesus should imitate him in life. Not so that God will be happy with us. That's what Jesus does for us. But because it would be very silly for us to follow Jesus and look nothing like him. Silly is a polite way of saying it. See, the real problem is when we get the order of operations wrong, so to speak. Uh, If you remember learning math, this is like elementary school math, if I remember right. Uh, Do you remember if if you've got a complicated math problem? It's like uh, 3 plus 2 times 7. Remember, you have to do it in a certain order. Otherwise, you'll get the wrong answer. You do multiplication before addition. See, if you just did it in order, 3 plus 2 is 5 times 7 is 35. That's the answer you'd come up with. But if you do it according to the order of operations, 2 times 7 is 14 plus 3 is 17. Come up with completely different answers. And there is an order of operations to belonging to Jesus as well. If we say, I will be good and believe in you, that's the attitude of the mockers. Right? I can take care of this myself, uh, and afterward, we'll just, Jesus, you take me the rest of the way. I'll, I'll get us like 80%, and you, you take care of the 20. But what Jesus tells us, he says, if you want to follow me, you believe in me, and then you start to become good. 
It's a result of your salvation, not the means of your salvation. That's the attitude of the faithful. And yes, it seems upside down that way. But the truth is that things that are right side up always look upside down. We are people who truly belong to a world standing on its head. We are like people doing a handstand and looking around and saying, why are you all upside down? And everyone else is like, dude, you're the one on your head. Jesus is revealing that to us in his person. That's why Jesus is so strange and why he's so weird and why he says things that we say, that's impossible, Jesus. We can't really live our lives turning the other cheek. And Jesus says, that's right. If you live in an upside-down world and if you are an upside-down person, you will never do the right-side-up thing. But if you recognize that I am coming back to turn the world right-side-up and you start living in anticipation of it, that will start to make sense. And the nice thing is that Jesus didn't say, go do this without giving us an example. He said, I'll do it first. I'll get up on the cross and die. That's the hard part. You guys can do the little bits. You always look upside down. Or the the world, Jesus always looks upside down. We are people who truly belong to a, a world that's upside down itself. And now Jesus has died. He's died for really being the Messiah. He's died for really being the king. He's died for really being the temple. All the accusations are absolutely true, and yet they don't mean what you think they mean because they're right-side-up things in an upside-down world. And he chose this. This isn't something that happened because we really messed up. That's part of it, but... Jesus says this in the Gospel of John. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus chose his path in obedience to his Father whom he loves for our good, even though we couldn't see it. And he reveals the most upside-down thing of all. With all the power we think we have, we really have no power at all. There's one last story I want to share with you. Standing at the foot of the cross was maybe the most upside-down person present, the Roman centurion. And his job was almost certainly to be in charge of killing Jesus. So much of his life must have dealt in death. And he almost certainly had personally delivered death many times before. But it was this most upside down of people alone who recognized the right side up nature of Jesus. Standing, facing Jesus as he died, the centurion exclaimed, truly this man was the son of God. The first person turned right side up by Jesus was his executioner. And in that, there is so much hope for all of us and for any of us. Wherever you stand tonight, whatever you've done, however upside down you are in sin and in shame and in frustration and in hopelessness and in anything else, 
Jesus doesn't turn you away at the cross. You may be specially qualified, better than anyone else, to see exactly who it was that died on the cross. The only right-side-up man who has ever lived to this point. You can run to the cross. You can bow and you can worship there, where no one else would think to worship. That's why this is so hard for us, right? We see this symbol everywhere. We know that this is a holy thing, right? This is, the cross is good. But not in Jesus' day. This was the place people went to die. This was the symbol of shame and defeat. It's a little like walking around, you know, if you wear the cross necklace on your neck, that's fine, by the way. I'm not criticizing that in any way. But it's a little like wearing an electric chair around your neck. Like, check out my cool necklace. That's how counterintuitive and countercultural this is. And this is where we find hope. This is where death failed to win for the first time in all of history. Embrace the strange paradox of Jesus, the only right side up man in an upside down world.